You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz. Each week, we come to you with the information that doctors are talking about in doctor's lounges all across the country. We try to arm you with the information that you need so that you can advocate for yourself and for your family and their health care. And we uh, try to uh, demystify the um the information that uh, you're getting from uh, sources that are uh, trying to uh, influence you one way and and try to uh, give you the whole story. The show is brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician-led healthcare think tank in the country. Uh, the Docs for Patient Care Foundation stands for Healthcare Freedom for All Americans, as well as you know. Doctor Patient Care Foundation also stands for the Doctor Patient Relationship. Our website is triple W D four. That's number four PCFoundation.org. D four PCFoundation.org. Please go to our website and uh, follow uh, the things that uh, we're writing about and talking about. Um, we need your support, so please uh, um, go there and uh, generously. Uh, Add, add to uh, uh, our uh, efforts and help us continue uh, bringing you this show and all, do all the work that we do in Washington and all around the country. Well, we are um, within 30 days of an election, and uh, as uh, predicted and as has been the case in every election since 2008, health care is front and center. It's being talked about because of um, COVID every day. There, it, it, the uh, COVID issues dominate the news cycle, and that's all about health care. Um, we are talking about the Supreme Court uh, nominee, um, Amy uh, Coney uh, Barrett, and uh, the left is trying to portray her as this slayer of Obamacare um, and uh, why we need to uh, not allow her to get on the bench because the uh, um, the Obamacare uh, case is going to be heard by the Supreme Court in November for the third time and this is something that uh, the left is trying to uh, convince the American public is uh, on the ballot and that she is certainly going to overturn it, which nobody can say for sure. Uh, so uh, there's there's health care everywhere that you turn, as as is the case. And we're going to talk about some of the good things about health care uh, that came out of the Trump administration with um, a gentleman who I've known for quite some time who has worked in health care in various uh, uh, places, uh, and has been uh, doing this for quite some time. Um, Brian Blaze is uh, a uh, senior policy fellow at the Galen Institute, but I, I knew Brian when he was at the Mercatus Institute, which has done incredible work in healthcare. And uh, from 2017 to 2019, he was a special assistant 
to uh, President Trump for economic policy at uh, the White House's National Economic Council. Um, on At the Galen Institute, he's been uh, writing uh, considerably about some of the uh, uh, plans that have been uh, put together by a uh, consortium of individuals who have been working on health care uh, for um, a number of years, but for the last two years trying to put together a comprehensive uh, policy, and uh, and uh, Brian has written extensively about that and uh, the things that came out of the Trump administration when he was uh, serving. So, Brian, welcome into the Doctor's Lounge. Hey, Dr. Hal, it's great to be with you. Uh, really respect uh, Docs for Patient Care and the work that they do. Well, thank you for saying that. You know, we we're all we're all in this fight together, Brian, and we all want the same thing, which is um, a healthcare system that works for patients and uh, not for special interests. Yep. So, Brian, you know, I, I you um, uh, I, I want to uh, get you to um, uh, share with the audience. Um, the the good things that came out of the Trump administration regarding health care. Everybody in the mainstream media, the dishonest mainstream media, is portraying Trump as the worst president with regard to health care. And I, every week on this show, maintain that, in my opinion, I think he is one of the best presidents as far as health care is concerned and what he has done for the American public. So can you unpack that? Sure. And uh, I, I think one of your opening comments is health care is a big electoral issue, and that's certainly the case. And I think part of that reason is because the government has gotten so involved with health care. It would be great for health care to be less politicized. Um, uh, and for that to happen, you know, we need to reduce government's role and uh, uh, more empower patients uh, working with their providers, working with their doctors, um, and get government and bureaucracy out of the way. You know, when the president uh, was elected in 2017, the big challenge uh, was uh, the problems with Obamacare. The individual market, which is the place where self-employed and individuals uh, in the middle class that don't have uh, coverage to the workplace go to purchase their insurance, was in a, in a state of chaos. Premiums had doubled uh, from uh, just four years earlier before Obamacare's rules were in place. Uh, deductibles were soaring, and uh, choices were dwindling. Uh, you know, you, you only had a choice of sort of the, uh, the government-approved plan, and the number of insurers offering those plans uh, declined markedly. So uh, the president stepped into a challenging situation and really uh, took a lot of steps to stabilize those markets and uh, open up options for people who uh, who that coverage uh, wasn't wasn't well serving and who needed alternatives. So uh, you know the administration in the first uh, sort of after I mean initially there was a c- congressional effort to deal with the problems. Uh, unfortunately, that. Uh, didn't work out the way we we hoped, but the president took strong action. He opened up uh, things called association health plans, which allow small businesses to join together and get some of the regulatory advantages and economies of scale that large businesses get. He opened up uh, 
short-term renewable plants uh, that aren't subject to all of the Obamacare regulations and are much more affordable and flexible for individuals. Uh, and the administration, uh, the president signed a repeal of the individual mandate tax penalty. This was the penalty uh, that people uh, faced if they uh, couldn't afford uh, health insurance um, that, you know, Obamacare had made more expensive. So those three actions, the expansion of association health plans, uh, the expansion of short-term renewable plans, and the elimination of the individual mandate penalty, uh, significantly increased uh, workers' uh, and families' ability to obtain coverage that were harmed by Obamacare. The White House Council of Economic Advisors issued a report uh, uh, sort of doing a cost-benefit analysis and showed that over a decade, uh, the net economic benefit from those three actions uh, is half a trillion dollars. Um, The administration also uh, took steps to improve uh, the individual market. So uh, it allowed states to uh, access uh, uh, money through these uh, uh, these state 1332 waivers uh, to set up some programs to subsidize high cost uh, enrollees in the individual market. Those reduced premiums. It also, Hal, and this is a, uh, a change that I think is the most profound and which I have written a lot about, um, and it's hard for the mainstream media to really wrap their heads around it. Uh, he uh, put employer-sponsored insurance on a, a potentially radically improved trajectory. Right. So right now, you know, most people get their coverage through their employer. And, they, and, uh, they, there's some and the employers that, like giving sure. it. They like giving the insurance to people. That's right. There, there's some advantages um, to that. Uh, one of the disadvantages is is that the employer uh, picks the plan. Uh, so the workers, uh, particularly at small and mid-sized firms, may only have the choice of a single insurance plan, which is not chosen by them, but it's chosen by their employer. Uh, now, one of the reasons that employers provide this coverage is because there's a big tax advantage. Uh, the, the value of the premiums isn't subject to federal income or payroll taxes. Um, so the administration didn't do anything to sort of disrupt um, that arrangement. But what it did is offer a new option. So instead of the employer picking the plan for their workers, they can set aside an amount uh, in what's called a health reimbursement arrangement and workers can take that amount and purchase coverage in the individual market that works best for them. Um, this helps some employers uh, that don't want to be involved in the health insurance uh, uh, business. It also holds the promise of workers having more choice and control over their insurance coverage. Now, this reform is going to be—it's going to be gradual. It's going to take a while, sort of, uh, for it to, to take effect. Um, but there's a really—it's—it's uh, it's expected that it's going to increase the size of the individual market by about 8 million people uh, by the middle of this decade. Now, as a contrast with Obamacare... Wait, before you leave oh, that topic, Brian, yep. and you might you might be pointing this out, but <clears throat> this is very important because of the portability of insurance. You might want to comment on that. Uh, uh, very good question. So one of the problems with employer-sponsored insurance is when people uh, lose their job, um, either voluntarily or involuntarily, they lose their health insurance. Like in COVID, like what's been happening now. That's right. So um, 
so conservatives have long advocated for a defined contribution uh, approach to health insurance where the subsidy uh, goes to the individual and the individual picks the plan that works best for them and that's the plan that they have regardless of, uh, of where they work. Um, really, I mean, no other major expense that people have is tied to the place of their work. And employers, you know, aren't selecting our, uh, our car insurance or homeowners insurance. Um, it's sort of an artifact of, um, some, some tax, uh, law from many decades ago, mm-hmm. um, and some, uh, some poor, uh, government policy during World War II, right. where employers really started offering, um, employer, uh, sponsored coverage. So this one change so, really, really, um, changes everything with regard to how people can, um, choose what they want. The, the plan, there's more choice because they don't have to go into a one size fits all, um, insurance um, product, and they get to take it with them. Yeah. So the portability is, this is not, I, I, in an ideal world, um, we would dramatically expand health savings accounts because health savings accounts are controlled by uh, the individual. Right. Um, and they carry with them across jobs. The HRA is uh, it's an employer account. Right. So right. the employer is making the key decisions on the HRA. Now, as a Trump administration, you know, we worked within um, uh, what the statutory authority was. There was very little that we could do administratively to expand health savings accounts. Right. Uh, but HRAs, uh, there was a lot of flexibility for us. And largely on HRAs um, and this, this uh, rule change, we reversed Obama administration restrictions so the Obama administration restrictions, I'm not sure if your, um, if your listeners remember the $100 uh, per day penalty in Obamacare. It was actually um, on employers that would reimburse uh, uh, non-group individual market premiums like this. Mm-hmm. So they uh, brought a hammer down on uh, these types of arrangements. Um, which I think was a, a, a foolish mistake on their part, uh, but, but they did, and we reversed that and allow employers now to offer uh, these HRAs that people can purchase individual market coverage with. So the Trump administration has been very busy in trying to be innovative, creative, in trying to give people more um, more control over their health care dollars and to protect them. Why don't you um, uh, share with us many of the protections that the Trump administration has uh, tried to implement to uh, help people um, uh, with uh, different problems and uh, and to um, make sure that people are taken care of. Sure. Uh, let me uh, uh, just uh, give you the, that one data point uh, that contrasts Obamacare with the Trump administration's actions. So if you go back... Um, to when, you know, the Democrats were really pushing Obamacare more than a decade ago. They really talked about, um, they were going to create a better individual market for health insurance. And it was a very attractive message. Um, it turns out that the individual market housed only about two million people more than it was pre-Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Uh, CBO, our sort of, uh, neutral arbiter, expected the individual market would be about 18 million people more. Um, than it is today. Uh, so we've added about 2 million people to the individual market, 
and we're spending more than $50 billion on subsidies um, in the individual market now. So as a rough sort of measure, cost-benefit measure, we're spending about $25,000 per newly insured. Mm. Um, and this is because Obamacare made coverage so much more expensive that the only people really who are buying it need massive government subsidies. Right. The Trump administration's HRA rule, I said, is projected to add 8 million people to the individual market with no new federal spending. Mm-hmm. So there's no new federal commitments. What there is is leveraging employer contributions into the market, and it's actually going to create an improved, um, larger, uh, more stable individual market over time. So counter to a lot of these narratives out there that the Trump administration has sabotaged Obamacare, it's really more truth that the Trump administration is fixing um, the core problems with Obamacare. Okay. okay. Um, now, uh, uh, to sort of your question on sort of broader efforts, you know, the administration um, didn't just focus on Obamacare and fixing problems with Obamacare and providing relief from Obamacare, you know, because really, I mean, Obamacare is um, the individuals in the individual market plus Medicaid expansion. And actually, one of the things I say about Obamacare now is that it really should be called, instead of the Affordable Care Act, the Medicaid Expansion Act, <laughs> because nearly 100% of the uh, people that have gained insurance through Obamacare is because they've been enrolled um, through the Medicaid program. And we, and we could talk about problems with that um, uh, if that's of interest. Um, the administration uh, wants to improve the health care system uh, for all Americans, though, and has taken sort of profound actions to move in that direction. So uh, one of the uh, main actions taken by the administration over the past 12 months is on the area of price transparency. So uh, for almost every other part of the economy, when people uh, shop, they know what prices are in advance of receiving care. But there are um, a lot of uh, entities in the healthcare system uh, that benefit from not disclosing prices. So uh, two of them are uh, health insurance companies and big hospital systems. And the administration has taken actions to require that both hospitals and insurance companies disclose their prices. Uh, actually, in um, they finalized the hospital transparency rule uh, almost a year ago now, and it's set to take effect in January of 2021. And what this information is going to do, it's going to, one, it'll help consumers, um, but it's also really going to help employers. Uh, because a lot of these health insurance companies um, uh, are not serving employers well. Right. And, uh, you know, there are, uh, the, as you know how, you know, there's a lot of doctors out there that have innovative arrangements that disclose their prices in advance. Um, and we want to get uh, patients to those doctors and to those practices that are price transparent um, and, you know, aren't going to surprise, surprise bill um, individuals. Um, so the fact that that price information is going to be available, I think is going to help uh, really identify who those uh, doctors and, and facilities are so that we can um, uh, uh, start getting more patients um, to uh, uh, providers that are, you know, providing upfront 
um, price information to patients. Right. So, so um, I'm going to throw out some key words that um, that will uh, kind of uh, uh, prompt you to talk about what uh, else the Trump administration has done because we can we can spend an over an hour talking about all of the good things that came out of the Trump administration and destroy the narrative that the left and their uh, media lackeys are trying to uh, convey to the American public, which are all, you know, really, truly lies. So let me start with veterans. Veteran health. Yeah, I mean, this was a, a huge priority uh, for the president. Um, as you know, he's a big supporter of the military and veterans. And he came in and, uh, you know, the VA was in a, a was in a mess. trouble. A mess. And uh, they did something called Veterans Choice so that they allow veterans, uh, you know, if the VA is serving veterans well, uh, great. But if not, veterans can um, have better alternatives for them. Absolutely. Telehealth. Telehealth is um, really, uh, uh, it's come to light, you know, with the coronavirus pandemic, that there's a lot of care that people receive that uh, they could receive in the comfort of their own home. And government instituted, and this is at a federal and state level, so many stupid restrictions um, that prevented the practice of telehealth. For instance, some states had regulations, you know, that the provider had to be um, licensed in the same state as the patient, or um, probably even a worse one, that the uh, face-to-face visit had to occur um, before uh, they could do a um, uh, they could do a telehealth uh, uh, appointment. Um, or, you know, that there were only limited number of locations that the patient would actually have to go to a particular site in order to access telehealth. Uh, it's really been clear with the pandemic um, that a lot of the services uh, uh, that doctors provide, and you can think about some specialties, for instance, on mental and behavioral health, where a lot of it can be performed um, uh, uh, through Skype uh, or, you know, video, uh, that... You know, the Trump administration has been aggressive with both Medicare and Medicaid in reducing uh, all of those stupid uh, government barriers uh, that never made much sense. Uh, they clearly uh, uh, were uh, were shown to, to be perverse by the pandemic and which, you know, they want to um, make sure don't come back. Right to try. Right to Try was legislation that the president uh, signed in 2018 uh, that allows uh, patients who are extremely uh, sick, who have sort of exhausted all of the options uh, uh, of sort of conventional treatment, um, to access uh, uh, treatments that haven't gotten full FDA approval yet. Um, and, you know, is going to be hopefully a lifeline uh, for many individuals uh, who otherwise would have died uh, without being able to get these uh, uh, get these medications uh, and treatments uh, uh, when at, at an earlier time. While we're talking about treatments, how about um, unpacking some of the actions that the president and the administration has taken to uh, try to improve drug 
access and drug pricing. Brian, you there? Sure. Yep. <laughs> so, um, uh, so this is a uh, top priority for the president. Uh, one of the pieces of legislation that he signed was uh, removing uh, gag clauses. So these are if you go to the pharmacist. Um, there were gag clauses that prevented the pharmacist from telling you about cheaper alternatives. Um, if, say, you had a, a $20 copayment for a medication, uh, but if you paid cash, the medication would only cost you $5. Uh, the pharmacist was prevented about telling you that you could uh, pay cash and uh, get the medication for $5. Uh, president signed legislation to get rid of the gag clauses. Uh, the administration, I'd say, has pursued two other um, I, let me mention uh, the other thing that uh, really uh, uh, in 2017 and 2018, the administration uh, really prioritized, and this was some of the uh, really good work of the FDA, uh, approving generic medications. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, uh, really unprecedented number of generics uh, coming onto the market. And there was actually, and this is an uh, uh, extremely underreported uh, story, but drug price inflation overall um, has been much lower uh, during the three and a half years of the Trump administration than it was in the decades uh, prior. And it's really from the introduction of a lot of this generic competition. Right. Um, there was a 12-month period when actually year over year drug prices had declined. Uh, the president brought this up, uh, I know, in his, uh, when he announced his health care plan two weeks ago. Um, and then there's sort of two other broad areas where the president um, is focused. The first is he is very upset that Americans pay so much more for medications uh, than individuals in other countries. So he's directed uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, uh, to investigate uh, uh, different uh, ideas for how uh, Americans can pay less money, uh, some much less money than they do now for drugs, uh, more on the order of what uh, uh, individuals in sort of other advanced economies uh, across the world pay. Uh, and the second area that the president, uh, uh, there was a lot of work on, was these rebates. <laughs> Um, so there are there are drug rebates that are negotiated uh, by uh, PBMs, and uh, it's sort of unclear how much uh, the PBMs are maintaining of these uh, drug rebates versus how much are actually passing through to the consumer. I think it's very little. <laughs> I think it's very little that they're passing through. So. Uh, uh, so that is a rule that you know the administration is uh, uh, working on. Um, it was pulled uh, for this sort of very complicated reasons, but I think it's something that the administration continues um, to sort of think through and how to bring more transparency uh, to the very complicated uh, sort of drug rebate pricing structure. And the president has taken a keen interest in certain health conditions also, um, kidney care and diabetes and the uh, ability of diabetics to get insulin. These are also yeah. initiatives. So um, let me, I'll start with the, uh, the diabetes and we've got, the we've kidney got, care. We've got two minutes before our hard break, but we can pick it up uh, after the break if we need to. Okay. Um, the uh, diabetes, the, um, uh, the president, so... This is one of the areas where the president was able to expand uh, the use of health savings accounts. 
So to have a health savings account, you need to be enrolled in a high deductible health plan. And uh, there are significant limitations to what a high deductible health plan can reimburse below before the patient meets their deductible. And um, uh, what we did was say, okay, for people that have chronic conditions, uh, there may be sort of innovative plan designs um, that want to reimburse uh, for uh, you know, insulin for diabetics, for statins, for people with heart conditions, um, uh, prior to them meeting their deductible, uh, has a way to sort of incentivize adherence to the medications. And, uh, uh we want to, uh, allow HSAs to be integrated with these plans. So the administration now, um, for certain conditions, uh, like diabetes, like heart disease, um, uh, you, plans can cover treatments for those conditions before the deductible and people can still gain the benefits of contributing to an HSA while they maintain those plans. So, so, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna go to a hard break, I think, right now, Brian, but we've spent a long time, um, talking about all these great things that the Trump administration has done. I'm gonna just, break right now, but we're going to pick it up again and talk about the differences between what the um, what the Biden-Harris agenda is for health care versus not just what President Trump has done, but what he hopes to achieve in his next term. So please stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're back in the doctor's lounge. My guest today is uh, Dr. Brian Blaze, Senior Policy Fellow at uh, the Galen Institute, the CEO of Blaze Policy Strategies and former um, uh, Special Assistant to the President on his National Economic Council. And we uh, have been talking about the accomplishments many of which Brian was part of um, when he was at the Trump White House regarding 
uh, the Trump health care policy. So, Brian, for the last uh, 30 minutes, we've really um, uh, just scratched the surface. There's more that we can talk about, but it seems to me that President Trump's accomplishments, his his record on health care, is an incredibly positive record, and it in no way um, is consistent with what we're hearing from the left and uh, from their from their surrogates in the media. I agree with you. I uh, uh, I always knew that the mainstream media and the health policy media had a uh, had a, a bias towards the left, but it be came very clear to me when they started calling me to sort of ask me uh, my views and to explain things and to comment in stories that it's very that it's very much the case um, I think I think you know uh, it's a real problem and uh, conservative ideas are at a disadvantage I mean one one thing if you look at there was actually some pretty good reporting on Obamacare through 2016. Right. So if you go back and look at the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, um, there were stories about, uh, you know, Obamacare's plans having extremely high deductibles, people, you know, calling them worthless because, you know, doctors, uh, many doctors wouldn't take those plans. Miraculously, though, how, you know, all the problems with Obamacare disappeared on November 2016. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, you know, consistently like that. I am. I think that, you know, the regulatory actions that we talked about, uh, the steps on uh, the health reimbursement arrangement and price transparency are uh, two really profound um, uh, policy changes that could significantly uh, reform our healthcare system. And when you look at reviews from the mainstream media of uh, the Trump administration's first, uh, uh, first term accomplishments and uh, sort of... A, missed opportunities, you know, they put it all together, they hardly ever mention those two. And it's enormously frustrating. Um, and they spin it on, uh, you know, that the Trump administration was bent on sabotaging health care and taking away options, and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, we were about uh, expanding consumer options, thinking that, you know, if the left thinks, well, uh, uh, we should restrict choices because... Um, uh, the elites in government bureaucracies uh, know better than uh, individual uh, families and patients what's best for us, and they try to restrict our options and uh, and and uh, and steer us toward their preferred way of financing care and uh, you know rationing care. And we think the patient should be in control. They should be empowered. Um, that the resources should flow to them and that they should have maximum choices in a competitive market. Um, and, you know, that side of the debate is unfortunately neglected, and I think it, it shapes American attitudes uh, towards health policy. And it's so important because, again, health care is one of the top two or three issues as it has been for the past 12 years and it influence it, it, it impacts everybody's life and p- very few people really understand what um, is uh, they, they, they don't know what is going on behind the curtain and um, 
and and so we hear all of these wonderful platitudes about what the um, left hopes to accomplish if they regain the White House, and I think that it would be a good exercise for the next next twenty uh, four minutes that we have on the show to um, compare and contrast what the left is hoping to do with their Medicare for All plan versus what the Trump administration hopes to accomplish in a second term. And you and I are both signatories on the health policy consensus group um, uh, report that goes through the things that um, uh, we we need to see happen in health care. And I think that we can expect to see happen for many of these points in a second Trump administration. So I'm going to uh, turn the floor back over to you, Brian, and let you um, compare and contrast what the left wants to do versus what this, um, what the uh, the uh, consensus statement uh, um, implies. Hey, happy to do that. Can I come back to the, your question on kidney care right before the break? Oh, certainly. Like to talk about that you bet. That's very important. As a kidney doctor, this is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, well, then you should uh, uh, you should feel free to uh, uh, interrupt me or correct me. <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead. That I make here, uh, but I would say, you know, kidney disease is horrific. And uh, sort of the standard of care for uh, for decades, um, you know, it's how Medicare reimburses is, you know, people get dialysis in institutions, and uh, dialysis is not a fun uh, process for anybody to go through. So what the Trump administration did, and um, the president, um, uh, uh, you know, signed an a, a executive order on kidney care, and there are. Um, uh, demonstrations being put out by the centers of Medicare and Medicaid services. And really, there's three big aims. Um, the first is to increase uh, the number of kidney donations um, so we can get people off of dialysis and um, get them uh, uh, to, to, uh, to have their own, their own kidney. Um, and there were some sort of disincentives to, uh, uh, to people donating kidneys that the administration is looking to um, uh, lessen those disincentives. The second is to move away from sort of institutional dialysis to dialysis that can uh, occur in the home, uh, ideally, you know, when people uh, are, are sleeping at nighttime. And the third is uh, the development of an artificial kidney. So the administration is making progress on all three of those. And again, really taking on a significant problem in American healthcare, and I'd certainly uh, welcome you to add anything to that that you'd like. Well, the Trump administration, I you know, and I'm 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 an observer, not not a participant, and but as a as a observer, one with strong opinions, I think that the Trump administration has done a fantastic job of listening to the people who are actually delivering the care, not the special interests, and so. Because of that commitment towards patients, he is real. He and and his team have really um, tried to um, uh, to go around 
so much of the bureaucracy that has been more of the same and uh, and and break the glass and do something different to try to uh, move us forward. And the things that you've said, Brian, about kidney care are, are spot on. And I think that that uh, there's so much more that we can expect to happen. You know, in in my lifetime, there's been so much work on tissue regeneration, and is you know the Trump administration has has been um, has been criticized for for defunding um, research, for being anti-science, and that is just so absolutely ridiculous. And I, I just wish that we had a platform like we are having this morning so that we can really um, debunk so many of the myths and the misrepresentations about what has has happened in healthcare with the Trump administration, which has a record that is, um, I think, exemplary and probably superior to most administrations and what we can expect going forward. And so going forward, you know, I think that what the left has in store for us is you don't have to, you don't have to really um, uh, imagine what can happen if the left gets the White House, gets the Congress. You can see it around the world in other systems. And I know that Mercatus has written about this, and you've been involved in this, Brian, about about socialized health care and, and what that means in, in England, where they do have choice to go outside of the national health system, but also in places like Canada, where choices have been limited, and they, these patients have been coming to America for their as a safety valve for their health care and so so let's let's kind of circle back to that and and have you weigh yep. in on that so you know one of the funny things when uh, i was working on obamacare a decade ago i would go on the radio and i usually get a question towards the end of the interview that was you know because obamacare was not was not going well and it would be didn't the democrats just do this uh, they knew it was going to be fail or they knew it was going to fail as a stepping stone to Medicare for all, with the government taking control of everything in our healthcare system. And, you know, I always answered that question that I didn't think that's what they were doing, uh, because they put a lot of resources and energy, and it was clearly a um, uh, priority for the Obama administration to implement Obamacare and to have it work well. Fast forward, I mean, we're not that far from that period of time, and I think now um, that maybe I didn't give the right answer because the Democrat primary debate was really an admission that Obamacare had failed. And on the one side, you know, the uh, people were pushing Medicare for all, which would have ended Obamacare, basically, and just had everybody uh, enrolled in the Medicare program, Uh, versus those um, uh, like Joe Biden, who said, yeah, it's not working well, but what we just need to do is uh, uh, expand uh, subsidies. Um, and take away more choices for people uh, uh, in the markets. So I think, you know, the Medicare for all is certainly where the left wants to go with health care. And really, I mean, I have I worked in the administration for two and a half years, and I see how the bureaucracy um, approaches issues with respect to Medicare. And it's very technocratic. Um, it's also very politicized. So do we want the federal government setting payment rates throughout 
our economy and deciding what gets reimbursed and what doesn't. Um, I think, you know, the, uh, 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 that is a disaster. I mean, we cannot price controls, um, always have, uh, negative economic consequences. It's like one of the things that students in economics 101 classes learn. But our healthcare system is largely driven by prices that are set by a bureaucracy at CMS. And, you know, they try to do the best job that they can. can. They have very smart people. Um, and we have great political appointees at CMS that are trying to do their best within sort of a, a, a really perverse construct. But what you have is you've got rates that are largely determined by the relative lobbying power of uh, interest groups. And uh, that's how, you know, healthcare resources are allocated throughout uh, the American economy. And Medicare's power is amplified because private insurers are often um, uh, uh, copying Medicare's decisions. Right. And they could be basing things on a multiple of Medicare rates. Right. Um, I think we need to uh, – um, so that is – I mean, that that is, though, where the Democrats' north star on healthcare is. Um, they want universal coverage, and that continues to be their main priority. And from my perspective, you know, uh, it's, people should all have health insurance. Um, but I view uh, uh, the health, the ideal sort of health financing arrangement, very different from uh, you know what the uh, where the uh, left uh, wing of the Democrat Party is, uh, where they want everyone in you know a, a government uh, uh, controlled plan where the government is setting um, uh, setting the payment rates, uh, collecting the premiums, um, and determining what is covered, what doctors and hospitals are reimbursed, where one, uh, where individuals have a real insurance protection, so they're protected in the event they have um, uh, something catastrophic happen to them, some uh, large medical expense. But that they uh, uh, fund uh, sort of routine care um, with cash, like cash that we could have in a health savings account where you actually have a market develop and you have um, providers that are forced to compete for consumer uh, dollars and to meet consumer preferences rather than sort of play all these games with third-party payment uh, with the role that insurance companies have in our healthcare system where really you have pretty extreme administrative expenses um, to, uh, 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 to try to, you know, ration, ration care. Um, so, uh, so I realized I just said a lot there. The mm-hmm. vice president um, ran against Medicare for All in the primary uh, ran on a platform that involves expanding subsidies for Obamacare um, and creates a public option. So the public option there, uh, a public option is where uh, the government collects the insurance premiums and sets what the rates are uh, for the providers. And um, uh, some people think a public option can save money if uh Providers are paid what Medicare pays because Medicare, as you know, tends to um, pay significantly less than uh, than what commercial payers pay. Um, some providers might balk at that uh, because they don't want to take those low uh, uh, reimbursement rates. And then uh, the question is, would 
the uh, Democrats make um, uh, a participation in the traditional Medicare program, make a condition of participation in the traditional Medicare program that providers accept um, the rates paid by the public option. Um, Would they tie that to licensure? That's what doctors are afraid of. Yep. And so, um, so the public option is sort of a way for the left to sort of get the foothold in on sort of the, the path to Medicare for all. The other, there's also significant problems with the Biden plan to increase subsidies for Obamacare. At a basic level, um, you're, you're just using taxpayer dollars to paper over the fundamental problem with Obamacare that the insurance is too expensive. Um, like I said at the beginning, uh, most middle class people aren't purchasing Obamacare plans because it's just not attractive coverage. Premiums are too high, the deductibles are too high, and um, the number of providers that take that coverage are are, are too small. Um, but the uh, the subsidies, uh, the, so the subsidies are already very generous. The Biden plan would make them more generous, and a key to the Biden plan is it would allow workers to choose um, whether to take employer coverage or to take a subsidy and buy coverage in the exchange. Now, at first glance, that may seem attractive. The worker would have a choice of where to go. The problem is that the subsidies are so generous for lower-income people, and the Biden plan would make them more generous, that you would get lower-income people um, uh, better off financially for purchasing in the uh, Obamacare exchanges. So there would be uh, a loss of individuals from employer coverage to the Obamacare exchanges. Now, those individuals also tend to be the younger and healthier part of an employer. So what happens within an employer plan is that you get adverse selection um, when the uh, healthiest individuals leave that plan, which means premiums in the employer plan would rise which means which means employers are going to be more likely to drop coverage altogether. So uh, the group Avalier Health did a study of the Biden plan, and they found that 18 million people would migrate to the exchanges voluntarily because they're getting a better deal. But another 14 million people would be forced out of their employer coverage um, because the employers just stopped dropping the coverage and so that there'd be a loss of employer coverage of 32 million people. Which would collapse, um, the, which would collapse it, the private market. Right. Right. It would, it would be the, it would be the, 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 the sort of the, the, the precipice. Um, and, uh, Chris Jacobs, um, who's a health policy expert, did an independent analysis, um, and said that the, the fiscal cost of this would uh, probably be uh, in excess of $2 trillion um, because of the expanded subsidies and how many more people uh, would be accessing these giant subsidies. And then the so Medicare the- for All, that, that's that been estimated. I think the latest thing that I've read was approaching $4 trillion over 10 years. Um, $4 trillion uh, a year. I yeah. believe. I think, yeah, I, I think yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the cost of Medicare for all, my, uh, my former 
uh, Boss actually at the Mercatus Center did an analysis of Medicare for All at being in excess of thirty trillion dollars right, right, over right. a decade. Four trillion a year. Yeah. That's correct. That's right. So we're 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 running short on time. I want you, if you would, Brian, one of the one of the talking points on the left when health care comes up is pre-existing conditions. They love to throw that one out. Can you just um, comment on that for a moment before we leave this topic? Yeah. So, first of all, the, the, the first thing that the left does is exaggerate the extent of the problem. So, and the vice president did this at the debate uh, last week where he said it was 100 million people uh, that have pre-existing conditions and the president correctly um, said it's not 100 million people that have pre-existing conditions. Um, the best uh, uh, sort of number I can give you on the extent of the problem is uh, uh, from an uh, Obamacare program. So when Obamacare took effect, it created a, um, a high-risk pool, heavily subsidized high-risk pool for people that couldn't get health insurance in the individual market. Um, the total enrollment, uh, the peak enrollment at any point in time in this high-risk pool was about, uh, it was under 200,000 people. Um, so first of all, it is not the, the scale of the problem, and the problem being people that have a medical condition that means they can't get an offer of affordable private insurance is much smaller um, than the left lets on. The second is we have, um, there were state programs um, to help people with pre-existing conditions before Obamacare. There were state high-risk pools, and they were subsidized, and people could go get coverage in state high-risk pools. The problem with state high-risk pools pre-Obamacare is that they weren't adequately funded. Well, conservatives uh, recognize that problem and have plans to send significant resources to uh, fully fund um, state-based high-risk pools. Um, there's other types of programs, too. There's reinsurance programs. There's different ways to design it. But really, the conservative approach is one that um, believes in federalism, uh, would let states set up their own programs, um, and would target individuals who uh, um, have have conditions um, that, uh, uh, the, uh, that mean they can't get private insurance. In addition, what we really want is people to maintain a policy over time. So that's one of the things that the administration um, did with its short-term plans is to uh, make clear that they can be linked with um, other products um, that protect people from ever going through medical underwriting again so that they are uh, what we call guarantee renewable um, so that once people have coverage, uh, they are uh, they are protected uh, from any uh, higher premium uh, increase that they would face um, from uh, uh, from getting sick in the future. Just like auto and and home owners insurance, they get to that's right renew it. So we've got I think about three minutes, and Brian, we really aren't going to have a, a chance. To go through um, the the uh, the recommendations of the health policy consensus group, but I'd like uh, to let all of our listeners know that everything that we have said about what the Trump administration has done and what the um, what the uh, what is possible moving forward 
is is um, summarized in the um, in the health care choices 2020 proposal so can you tell people um, how they can get to that and uh, why why they should check it out with the last couple minutes sure and it's going to be um, I think it's going to be fully released uh, next week, I'm told by Grace Marie Turner, who is the um, uh, who is the president of the Galen Institute. So you'd be able to, if you just Google um, "healthcare choices proposal" and the Galen Institute or the Heritage Foundation, you'll find the full report. And really, it it, it is um, uh, when you know we're told that conservatives, Republicans, don't have uh, a health care plan. I always point them uh, to two places. One, I point them to a 120-page report that the Trump administration released when I was there. It's titled Reforming America's Healthcare System Through Choice and Competition. It's got more than 50 detailed recommendations um, for what both the federal government and state governments can do to improve healthcare policy. And you know what? How most of what they can do to improve healthcare policy is get out of the uh, way ending or <laughs> limiting yeah uh, what they're already what they're already doing and the healthcare uh, choices proposal um, that has been worked on you know by uh, by a broad coalition of medical professionals uh, business uh, business leaders and uh, policy experts is you know what can we do uh, to better uh, uh, to improve health care by really empowering consumers, and patients, and uh, and also empowering uh, medical providers, doctors, um, nurses, hospitals, um, to best provide that care, knowing that the best way the, the way we get best results is through competitive um, competitive markets, um, where consumers are are shopping for for what's giving them the, the most value. Well, I hope that people who are listening to this share this podcast with their friends before they vote because health care is clearly on the ballot this election and the decisions that people make are going to have ramifications for their lifetime, their children's lifetime, and their grandchildren's lifetime. So, Brian, thank you so much for being with us today, and I hope that you'll come back and we can talk about some of the other things that you've so eloquently written about. Hey, Hal, it's great to be with you. Thanks again for all you do um, and for what all the doctors listening do. Thank you. Well, thanks so much, Brian. And thanks for being with us in the Doctor's Lounge today. And come back next week when my co-host, Dr. Scott, will be back to talk more about health care and the election. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.